God, we love you so much. All right, let's pray. Woo, Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for your power, for your anointing, for your presence, for your word, that it is in us, that your presence is in us, it's upon us, it's right here with us, Lord. And Father, we, we ask that you would come and just break open our hearts to see you, to know you, to understand you, Lord. Father, I pray that every stronghold be subject to the, the power of the name of Jesus. And Lord, that we would be delivered into that place of absolute freedom in understanding who you are. God, we thank you that we do have the mind of Christ, Lord, and that you are gonna speak to us today. And God, you're gonna set us free and do mighty, powerful things, Father. Even in me, Lord, I surrender my heart, my mind, my mouth. Lord, say things through me today that I have never even thought before because you are in, on the inside of me. Father, just to live is, is you, Lord. It is you. It is Christ in me. And so, Father, I ask you to speak today. Speak to all of our hearts. Open them up. May the eyes of our understanding be opened up to know, Lord, everything that you have for us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, we are obviously on this little journey together as a church. We are taking back Pentecost it's kind of been hijacked over the years and over the decades, over the centuries. But I believe the Spirit of God wants to do something really amazing. And He is. He is doing something amazing. He, he actually did it when we first came to know Him. Um, from the moment that the church was birthed, a couple of thousand years ago, everything that we need was given to us by God. And uh, so let's get straight into the Word of God. We'll, we'll start to give you scriptures. You can go back to the podcast and write them down and listen to them. Uh, again, but I'm just going to give you one by one by one, all right? Second Peter 1, 3, seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through the true knowledge of him, uh, who called us by his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So as we're going along on this series called The Anointing, we're in the sixth week now, and we're discovering what that really means to us as individuals, what that looks like to us corporately. And of course, there are some verses that I'm just going to say every single week because they become a bit of a, a pillar and a foundation for us understanding what we're talking about. 1 John 2.20 says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth, or at least that's what's supposed to happen. Uh, we all know the truth. That is what the, the Word of God says over you and I. And, um, you know, when there's an increase in the anointing, when there's an increase in the manifestation of the anointing, people call it revival. And it's an obvious outward display of the power of the Holy Spirit. And the truth is, though, that we can walk in revival consistently. And these are some of the things that I've said over the last five weeks, and I just want to pick them up just as we go into what I want to speak on today. But let's remember that the seed of revival is actually already in us. When we were born again by an incorruptible seed, which is the Word of God, that was actually the first revival. When we were born again, we were born from above, actually, born of the very essence of God. And we, we read that in Psalm uh, 119, we read that the Word of God is the very thing that will revive us. He says, revive me according to your word, your ways, your righteousness, your loving kindness, your ordinances. 
God's always in the business of reviving us to bring us back to a place of consistently relying on him and knowing him and walking in the knowledge, the true knowledge of him. So the journey of revival doesn't have to be this thing that we long for and wait for, for conferences to come along, that we run to in, you know, in other nations, other, other continents to go and find where, where revival is happening. No, it can actually be consistent and constant in our own hearts and in our own lives. Why? Because he never leaves us nor forsakes us. The in you anointing that we've talked about over these last few weeks is always in us. It's permanent. The Bible says that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. So we've learned and we are learning that really the only variable is actually us. The only variable is us and our responses. There's nothing wrong with the seed of the Word of God. The seed has to find good soil. It all depends on the soil of our hearts. You know, and even then it's 30, 60, 100 fold return that might happen. So it's all about presenting our hearts before God and letting the hearts be ready so that the seed can go in because it is an incorruptible seed. It is powerful, it is living, it is active. It was powerful enough for you and I to be revived at the beginning, to be brought to life in God, to be born again. So the only variable is us. So what is the anointing? We've looked at that, we've, we've seen and we've learned that the anointing is actually inseparable from the person of the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of truth and we read how in, in John 14, 26 that He, the person, will teach you all things and bring to our remembrance things that Jesus has said. John 16, 13 says, but when He, a person, the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. So that sounds like the anointing within to me, doesn't it? That John spoke about in 1 John, when he said, you have an anointing of all of you know the truth, because the Spirit of God is in us. And we've learned that the anointing is the act of consecrating someone, of setting something, someone apart by declaring, now you are holy, you are separated for my use. And the manifestation of being anointed is the tangible power of the Holy Spirit for a purpose. Nothing's wasted in God. It's for a purpose for God. It's not so that we sit around and have little spirit parties and get all excited about, about manifestations. No, it's for a purpose. And it's, we've learned that it's the bestowal of divine favor or appointment. It's a divine appointment for the purposes of God into a special function. God makes use of every single one of us. There's a function, there's a purpose, there's an appointment that God has for you and I that when the anointing comes on our lives, we have that thing that is bestowed upon us and there's divine favor for that job that is unique to you. So we've learned over the last few weeks, very quickly, we've learned that a commissioning takes place. Uh, just as the Old Testament anointing oil had to be applied to every generation, so too the anointing of God for us now demands a response from every generation, from us, his people. When the anointing of God comes, it demands a response when there's a manifestation of something in our lives and we're being consecrated for a purpose, then it demands some sort of response from us. Will we respond? And we looked into the Old Testament and when the anointing came, it had to be, it had to be given to every single generation. It wasn't enough to just pass down stories. Every generation had to receive and accept it. We learned that he awakens us to him, that the anointing of God awakens us to him, he walks into to our lives. It's a person, his compassion, his presence, his love for our enemies. It's amazing. So, you know, when we, we, we have that love for our enemies, that, 
spirit of forgiveness that just letting go begins to unlock us from our prison. And we realize that we belong to a family of God. We belong. And, um, and so, you know, an orphan spirit that, that plagues so many people literally has no place in our hearts. And like I've said, you know, it's not like the Bible talks about an orphan spirit, but there is, uh, that is the impact on people when they feel separated from God or from his people. And when they're delivered, suddenly they feel like they love those people. They feel like their family, that whatever that was that was blocking them is, is removed. We've learned that things begin to shift and shake when revival hits our life because God will always leave a trail. He'll always leave a trail of where he's been. He shows up in our lives. And, you know, I, I think what that really means is we should always have a testimony. We should always be able to say, this is what God's doing in me. You know, when we, start, when we have to bring up testimonies that we have from 20 years ago, 15 years ago, somehow it feels like maybe things aren't really that fresh in our lives anymore. We need to have an encounter with the, with the anointing now so we can have a testimony of what, what is shifting and shaking in our lives. We've learned that he teaches us, but only if we listen properly. You know, there are plenty of people wanting to deceive us. And uh, the first Timothy 4 verse 1 says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And we can see it doesn't take much for us to realize that there are many people, many Christians in unbelief. And the Apostle Paul said this in 2 Timothy 3, 5. He said, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. And that's literally just a, a manifestation of unbelief. And we, we looked into what does that really mean? It says in, he said in 2 Timothy 3, verse 7, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. You know, sadly, over the 40-something years of walking with God, Brahm and I have seen that many times that people just want to keep learning. They just want to keep, there's nothing wrong with learning. My husband is still learning, um, just finished his master's and possibly do his PhD. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with learning. But when we never arrive at the knowledge of the person of the truth, there's something wrong. It means we're esteeming knowledge uh, above a relationship. And often people do that. The Apostle John said in 1 John 2.18, and he warned us about the fact that we've got to be careful because the, the anointing does want to teach us, but we've got to be aware. And he says in 1 John 2:18, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Then he goes on to say, but you guys have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. That's our, that's our foundation. That's our, our concrete foundation to stand on. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. And then as, the, as John begins to discuss the anointing, he leads in with this in verse 26. He says, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. So it's really clear here, there's, there are many warnings in the word of God that there will be plenty of people that will try to deceive us. There'll be doctrines of demons. There'll be all sorts of things that come against us. There'll be denial of power. There'll be unbelief. <coughs> Pardon me. And so he warns us, there will be people, I'm writing these things because there will be people who are trying to deceive you. But as for you, and here he says again, 
So this is only seven verses later. As for you, the anointing which you received from him, it abides, it remains. You are sealed with him. It's not going anywhere. It remains with you and in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, it's not a counterfeit, just as it has taught you, you remain or abide in him. So we see really clearly that we actually have everything that is pertaining to life and godliness. It's all available to us. And like I said, you know, we don't have to go through a priest anymore to have access to God or his truth because it all comes through the true knowledge of him, the true knowledge of Jesus. So what is, or where does that true knowledge of him come from? It's clearly more than mere head knowledge. It all comes from him. Well, we know that it's in us because he teaches us truth. We know it's in the word because the word is teaching us truth. You know, inherent in the word of God is the faith to believe the word of God. That's what's so amazing. Inherent in the word itself, in that seed of truth, that incorruptible seed is the faith to believe the word. The Bible says that Jesus is the author. He starts it, he ignites it, he initiates our faith because he is the word and we are born again by that word. And we've also learned that we are, the, the, the true knowledge of him also comes from the governmental structure of the church. It's people who are given by Jesus to equip us. And so, like I said last week, we had this kind of firewall um, or a safety net around us. And last week, as we began to look into this, we, we, we began to talk about the fact that the church, as God's government here on earth, is commissioned to feed, to nurture, and actually to transform the collective narrative of, of even nations. That's, that's our job. Jesus said his last commission was, go out and make disciples. Teach them about me. That was his that was his commissioning to us. But the church, as we discovered last week, begins to drift when she loses her reliance on the anointing. And it's only the anointing that gives us truth. And so we need to remember that he alone needs to inform our thinking. And so last week, we talked about walking with the true mind of Christ and what that looked like. So what is the true mind of Christ? Well, it means to understand, really, what has been freely given to us, revealed by the Spirit or Christ within. Let's, let's pick it up in 1 Corinthians 2 and from verse 11. And let's read what Paul was saying before he got, um, oh no, sorry, this is what I, what I was mentioning last week. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 11. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And that word mind, if you look up the original word in, the, in Strong's Concordance, it's actually the intellect, the thought, the feeling or the will, the understanding of God. So he basically says that we might understand God because we have his mind, his intellect. So we have this incredible assurance here that he wants to teach us things. He wants us to know things. He actually wants to pour out truth and understanding into our hearts. So this is the true Christ within, not the New Age version that we looked at last week. You know, the New Age says it's already there. You just have to remember. You know, we, we read that quote um, from Marianne Williamson that, 
Jesus came down and he remembered and he self-actualized. And uh, New Age says that we can transform our material world, uh, circumstances through faith and our personal willpower, that our ultimate reality can be found within ourselves. And yet really all of this thinking is actually influenced by a belief that the human self somehow is the closest thing that we have to a reflection of the divine. It's basically saying it's as if we already possess the mind of Christ and we just don't realize it yet. And there's a false partaking of that divine nature that we read about before. It's the ultimate deception. See, the truth is we actually, all of us, every single human being, whether they know God or they don't, they actually have been born in God's image. That's the thing. But until we're born again, the Bible tells us we're actually separated from God. And so we need to know him. And you know, how many people, I said this last week, how many people try and look within, they try and find strength within, they try and find the, the ultimate reality within themselves, they try to pump themselves up with you know, how great they can be and you know, just keep the faith. And you hear all this kind of, these little um, slogans and things that people have, and yet they suicide because hopelessness is there when they look inside, they're empty. And so you know, we're living in a devastated world that is believing of a whole bunch of lies. So we can't sidestep the cross. We just can't do it. The Bible says we have to die first to receive this mind and we need to get out of the way so that he can live fully. Live fully. John 6, 63, and I said this scripture last week, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Remember, we talked about how the anointing cannot anoint flesh. So we see here that the, the flesh actually profits nothing. And we talked about Paul, how he had to go through the death of everything. You know, he was this Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a highly intelligent man. And yet he had to go through laying down all of that. And that's why when you read Paul's writings, the cross is emphasized so much in every single one of his letters. The truth of the cross is there. He knew what it was to lay everything down. He knew what it was to then have his natural gifting resurrected again and, and accompanied by a wisdom and an, and an insight that could actually only come from God. And that's why he said things like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. In other words, to die is better because I'm with him, but to live, all I've really got left is Christ. And who is Christ? He's the anointed one who is living on the inside of me. So he's saying my whole life has been narrowed down to this very narrow place of literally operating from a place of Christ who is within me. There is nothing else worth bringing into my circumstances of my, of my own intellect, of my own courage, of my own graces, of my own abilities. There's nothing worth bringing into my reality. God has got me on this very narrow place where it's literally only Christ crucified. Yeah. It's amazing. He, he understood this principle because he had to walk in it. He had to live in it. So let's listen to him. If we've got the mind of Christ, Let's listen to him. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 6, Yet among the mature we do impart a wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would definitely not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they actually knew what was coming, now, we don't really know if he means the natural human rulers or the spiritual rulers. Either way, none of them, whoever it is, 
If they really knew what was going to happen, they would not have crucified the Lord, Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things, though, but listen to this. These things, God has revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Wow. So why would we want to live below that normal? Why would we want to live anywhere below that kind of normal? All right, so let's look at what is this wisdom? What is this wisdom that Paul is talking about? Why is it so secret? Why is it so hidden? Why does he say it's only for the mature? Is there some hidden elite spirituality that requires deeper spiritual information for us to acquire? You know, these guys, the the Corinthian church, they've just come out of Gnosticism, which is basically this pursuit of more spiritual knowledge that they believe that, you know, they they sort of had disdain for the physical body and all they wanted to do was keep gaining more spirituality by spiritual knowledge so that they could feel like they were ascending higher and higher into some spiritual level. So it was almost like there was a need for greater spiritual knowledge to increase their sense of spirituality. And really, it's like what we said last week, that's what the New Age teaches, that they're trying to be spiritual by bypassing the death of self through the work of the cross. And instead, they're exalting and idolizing what self can do without God. So that's what Gnosticism is and was, and I'm sure that's a very simplistic explanation of Gnosticism, certainly not an expert on it. But that was the background of this particular church. So Paul's coming in, and if you read the letters of 1 and 2 Corinthians, this is what he keeps hitting. He keeps talking about, you know, the fact that knowledge puffs up and you guys just think of yourself. And if you go through all the different principles in Corinthians, you'll begin to see, even when they prophesy, they, they you know, he, he has to say, come on, guys, stop making it about just praying in tongues when nobody can actually understand what you're saying. That doesn't make you more spiritual if nobody can actually understand. I'd rather just, I can, I'd, I'm glad I can, prof, I can speak in tongues more than you all, but when it comes to trying to give something to someone because I love people, I'll make sure that they can understand I'd rather speak five words in the known language that they can understand and he's having a go at these guys for saying come on stop trying to find your own esoteric kind of um, you know uh, spirituality that makes you feel so spiritual and so elated so that's that's the emphasis that's the thrust when you read through Corinthians that's the thrust of that So why then is Paul now making it sound like he's playing the same game as them? It's almost like he's playing the same game as Gnosticism. Because he's saying there's a secret one, there's a hidden one, it's special, and it's only for the mature to acquire. And you know, there have actually been movements in Christianity throughout throughout the centuries that have actually gone off track looking for that secret wisdom and think that there's there's gotta be a deeper depth and a, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. Unless you read things in context, we can really go off track really quickly. But when we begin to read everything in, con- on, in context here, and you go back into chapter 1 and at the beginning of chapter 2, we see what Paul is actually really saying here. In fact, he is contrasting two different types of wisdom. And the, word, the Greek word for wisdom is Sophia. So he's contrasting the two types of Sophia. There's the worldly human wisdom, the Sophia of the natural man, the man that doesn't have the spirit of God in him. And then there's God's wisdom. It's God's Sophia. 
which requires God to explain God. And that's something that, uns- that unspiritual people can't understand because he's not on the inside to explain himself. You know, that is what is in us. That is the mind of Christ. God explains himself to us from the inside. So the key to understanding God's wisdom lies with the Spirit because the basic premise is that only God himself makes the knowing possible. Only, only God himself makes the knowing possible for us. Humans on their own, in our own capacity, actually don't possess the quality that would make it possible for us to know God or his wisdom. We can see that, right? That's why we need his seed to cause us to be born again. We can't be born again by ourselves. We believe and we receive, but it's him who does the job. We don't possess the quality to be able to do that. The natural man or the natural woman cannot know God by reason or intuition. You know, last week I, I... summarized very briefly an article that I just read that week from the Washington Post talking about the quote-unquote self-centered religion of Trump and Williamson. And it talked about these waves of intuitional religion, that's how they put it, washing over America for several centuries. And it's basically believing in and trusting their divinely sanctioned intuition. And much of the New Age actually, when you start to study it and start to look into it, much of the New Age philosophy comes from a little-remembered phenomenon called New Thought. And that began to emerge in the, in the 1800s and the 1700s, I think it was. And the very ethos of that principle was, if you feel it, it will come true. So throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and I'm, I'm reading now from something that I uh, read, that I picked up, I think it actually was from that article. It says that hundreds of thousands of Americans scooped up dozens of titles promoting the New Thought ethos, which was, of course, if you feel it, it will come true. And there was a guy in in 1897 who wrote a book book called All's Right with the World, which instructed his readers not to wish for betterment, but to summon it through the force of will. Remember we talked about We can use our own willpower to change things. And so he said things like, I am well, I am opulent, I have everything, I do right, I know. We see another book written in 1901, it says, anything is yours if you only want it hard enough. Just think of it, anything, try it. Try it in earnest and you will succeed. It is the operation of a mighty law. This is what he wrote. We see capitalists, you know, this is the, A few centuries ago, this was at the foundation of thinking in in American society. You had capitalists writing books in in 1937 uh, on things like think and grow rich. So it's easy to see where the roots of even the extreme name it and claim it faith movement from the Christian uh, world came in, where we have this prosperity gospel now. It's like there's been this mixture and this melting pot of this thinking that permeated American society centuries ago. And of course, all of it is sidestepping having him on the inside. And my question is, where was the voice of the church in all of this? We need him to teach us the depths of who he is. And you know, when you research it, it says that it started back in a great awakening in the 1700s. And this is what's really tragic. There was a great awakening from the church and there was, it, there was this whole message of the new birth and there were powerful apparently tent revival meetings and many people were getting saved and literally getting born again because they were preaching the new birth 
that we mentioned before. But when you look at the reality of what has happened since, it's almost like that got twisted and it got split into another message as well. And it led into this new thought reality. It's almost as if people rejected the truth that Jesus was the only way and they took on this new thought thing and it became an echo of the new birth that we have to have as Christians. And they began to take in, no, 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 we can sidestep the cross and we can actually look for Christ within. And so it became a counterfeit message. And it led to the whole new age movement that we see now. And yet I see even so many Christians do this. We go in and out of trusting God, depending on God, and then depending on ourselves. And you know, we end up relying on our own wisdom. You know, I see people do this even now. They, they start off with the wisdom of God, but they end up relying on their own wisdom. And, and I see lives in a mess. I see fruitless lives, confused lives, stagnant walks with God. You know, the minute we start to cross over into solely relying on our own wisdom and we reject the wisdom of God, this is what happens to us. So he alone gives good things to us with the power of his spirit. You know, self is actually the biggest enemy of any Christian. Jesus' core message is only unless you, unless, sorry, unless you deny yourself, pick up the cross and follow me, you are not worthy to be my disciples. Because there's nothing, there's nothing that we without the Spirit of God can bring to the table. The natural man without the Spirit cannot understand that which we comprehend from God himself. So, let's look at this secret hidden wisdom. You know, and that's why Paul talks about, he says how, that's why the natural man can't understand the spiritual man. We're an enigma to him. He, he doesn't understand. God's wisdom can only be known by God's people because they alone have the spirit. So what is this mystery that Paul talks about? Colossians 1.26 says this, that is the mystery which was hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. We read earlier, and I'll read it again, 1 Colossians 2 verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. This is the mystery. The mystery is that we have Christ within us, and he wants to reveal things to us. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says this, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. See, this is the mystery that's been hidden. This is the power that we need. That word power is actually dunamis, which is where we get our English word dynamite from. And it literally means a miraculous power, a strength, a violent, mighty work. The power of the cross or the word of the cross, understanding what Jesus did at the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. People don't wanna go the way of the cross. They, they wanna keep self alive. And yet it says, when we understand it, to us who are being saved, it is the very dynamite power that will bring a release in our lives. 
When we go into that place of the cross, we begin to understand things. He begins to speak to us. There's a flow of information. There's an understanding. There's the, the mind of Christ. This is actually a demonstrable wisdom that he gives us. This is an actionable wisdom. You know, the way I see it is as Christians, we are called to think simply, to die quickly. And by that, I mean die to ourselves quickly. Then we hit the cross and we go deep. Then we let the Holy Spirit take this mind of ours and explode his information, his understanding for his glory. You know, when we go to that place of the cross, when there's that exchange, when there's that exchange of wisdom, when we learn to let go, his wisdom, his power, his insight, his knowledge, it's all there. It's all in there. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 19, when you follow on from that verse that I just read, you know, that I'll go back and I'll read it. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased. In other words, it pleased God that through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To Jews, it's a stumbling block. And to Gentiles, it's just foolishness. But to those who who are the called, both Jews and Greeks. Interesting, God makes us into one man, a new man. It is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is our wisdom because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Guys, he is our wisdom. He is the secret and hidden wisdom of God. The anointed one, Christ in us, the hope of glory, it's him. But it's only words to us unless we encounter him, unless we have an encounter with that. He is our hidden secret wisdom. In verse 26 of 1 Corinthians, 20, uh, Corinthians 1, it says, For consider your calling or your commissioning, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom. There it is again. He is our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You know, when we encounter him, we understand. Think about Peter. He was a coward. He was despondent. After he denied Jesus and, and uh, everything had happened, Jesus had gone to the cross you know, at one point, Jesus, uh, Peter even returned to, to go fishing. He was quite despondent. But then he had a face-to-face -face 
with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And this guy understood then. He stood up and he speaks these incredible spiritual words. Remember we talked about uh, out of of chapter two, it says, we teach with spiritual words that are taught by the Spirit of God. Well, that's what he did. He began to speak boldly spiritual words. He displayed to us what true New Testament Christian leadership should look like. That's, what, that's actually our job description is to speak boldly with words that are spoken and inspired by the Spirit of God. And it only came after he had a face-to-face with the Spirit of God. He had an encounter with, with God through the Spirit of God. And this boldness came on him and all of a sudden he understood. He gets up and he starts preaching. He starts teaching and laying out the whole gospel. He starts going back and, and quoting out of Joel and he starts, he starts saying all these things that only the Spirit of God could have gone in and done because he'd literally learned what it was to die to everything. He'd learned that he was merely a human being. He'd learned, you know, even through the, the three and a half years he, he walked with Jesus, he was kind of cocky and he'd say all these silly things and get himself into a bit of trouble. And, you know, one minute he's hearing from God, the next thing Jesus is telling Satan to depart, you know, and all this kind of thing when he was saying foolish things. And, uh, and he realised now what it was. He realised he's just, he's just a mere man. He can't do very much at all. But then he has this face-to-face encounter with the power of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost and all of a sudden he stands up and he understands. Why? Because God causes us to understand. And he takes the foolish things of this world. He takes the weak things of this world. He took a fisherman. Wow. And then we look at Paul on the other end of the scale, opposite end of the scale. He was a brilliant mind, he was a scholar. He had great worldly Sophia, great worldly uh, wisdom. And yet the guy killed Christians, thinking that he was doing the right thing by the wisdom, the great wisdom that he had learned until he encountered Jesus. He had a face-to-face with Jesus. Literally a face-to-face with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And when he saw who Jesus was, when he saw him, he understood. Why? Because the Bible says that we might understand. Come on, guys. He's trying to bring his church, just, he's trying to say, come on, get out of your heads. On the other hand, we say, be intelligent believers. <laughs> but not intelligent in your own strength, intelligent in the Word of God. And then get out of your own head, humble ourselves, and let's have an encounter with him so that we might understand. That we might understand. My title today, I think, it keeps changing, but I think it's going to be called Encounter Him so that we might understand. It could change by the end of the sermon. We'll see how we go. So this is what happened with Paul. What about the guys who were on the road to Emmaus? Oh my gosh, the guys on the road to Emmaus. They didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize him. They were just natural men. That's a a picture of people who were just in their natural Sophia, their natural wisdom. They're talking to Jesus and yet there was a response in them. See, this is what happened to me before I became a Christian. I was in my natural mind. I couldn't really see Jesus, but when I heard about him, my heart burned within me, and that's what happened to them. They heard him teaching from the, from the scriptures, and of course, he was talking from the Old Testament scriptures that were pointing a picture and pointing towards him, and when they heard the word, it says their, their, their hearts burned within them, but it wasn't until they communed with him, and it says that Jesus gave them bread. When he broke bread with them, 
they had a face-to-face -face with Jesus and they understood. All of a sudden they understood and they went, wow, didn't our hearts burn? This is what it is. They had the Old Testament explained to them. You know, we think, how do I, I need to go to Bible college. Well, there's nothing wrong with going to Bible college. Brown's probably going to do his PhD. He'll, he'll study till the day he dies because he's, he's a, an academic and God's made him like that. And we need, we need this teaching gift in the, in, the, in the church to keep everyone on track from a theological point of view. But, you know, that's not what qualifies us to understand God. That's not what qualifies us that we might understand. It is we have the mind of Christ by the very nature of the fact that we are spiritual people. See, this is what got Paul so ticked off at the end. Remember that, the passage that I read at the, at the end from chapter 3, verse 1? He goes, listen, you guys, you're spiritual, but really, you're, you're, I'm trying to feed you meat, but I, can't, I keep having to give you milk because you're still fleshly. There's jealousy, there's, there's um, striving and strife amongst you, there's division amongst you. You're still acting like people of the flesh. How can you, like he's having a go at them because positionally they are spiritual people. They actually do have the mind of Christ, but they're refusing to die to their own thinking. And it all goes back to this argument when you read back in chapter one, they're arguing, you know, who are you from and who are you of? And they're, they're, they're counteracting each other and, and they're, they're being very fleshly. And it's causing division and disunity. And Paul's saying, come on, grow up. Grow up. I want to speak to you like mature people. There is a hidden wisdom. There is a secret wisdom. And it's literally the cross. Just die to all your rubbish and all your flesh and all your own thinking. Let it go. Come to me. Paul, let everything go. He said, it's all dung. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I know everything that there is to know according to that, 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 that uh, whatever it is that he had to know. I can't even think of the word, but you get what I'm saying. He knew it all. And yet he says, I count it all but dumb. I count it all nothing. But to know Christ, it's him and him crucified. So we are blind until we believe the foolishness of the cross. Until we receive it. We're nothing. And then... He reveals the depths of Christ and the depths of God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. You know, in Acts chapter 4, 13, there's an incredible scripture in there. Like when you start to look for this, it's all throughout the New Testament. It says that people were amazed. In Acts 4, 13, it says people were amazed when they looked at Peter and John because they knew them to be uneducated men. Now, uneducated in what way? Uneducated in the Hebrew traditions, the scriptures, according to the standards of the Pharisees and the scribes and, and all the rabbinic sort of traditions, they were uneducated, they were unlearned men. And yet they were amazed at watching them because it says they recognized them as having been with Jesus. See, he's it, he's enough, he's enough. And that's why in 1 Corinthians 2, let's look at chapter 2 now, the beginning of chapter 2. That's why he says in chapter 2, verse 1, this is Paul. So when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration 
of the spirit and of power, that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power or the dunamis or the dynamite power of God. Not many of us were wise, not many of us were of noble birth, not many of us were anything. But look, look what God's done. He uses the weak of this world. He uses the foolish things. Mark 16, 20 says, And they went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. See, this is, this is a truth and a wisdom a hidden, mature wisdom that is literally just finding its centrality in the cross and not in our own wisdom, not in our own actions, not in our own fleshly responses. And God will work with us. So what is he saying to us? When he says, when he, when he rebukes the Corinthians in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, you know, there is jealousy, there is strife. He says, I'm trying to feed you with with solid food, but you're just not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. You know, he says, are you not being merely human? That's what he says to them at the end. So what is he saying? That when, let's not be merely human when we are already partakers of the divine nature of God. See, Paul was constantly, constantly trying to remind these people that they belong to a different world order. So don't pursue or think in terms of merely human Sophia. He says, lay it down. He will fill you with wisdom. When we rely on our own human wisdom and our own human knowledge, I believe this is when the church ceases to rely on the ability of the Holy Spirit to teach us and the ability of the Holy Spirit to demonstrate through us. In fact, I think the church begins to get afraid of that because we don't, we, not only do we cease to believe that it will happen, but we cease to actually give him room and dare for it to happen. Because our natural knowledge won't allow us to do things like that. Our natural wisdom, I, I should say. And see, that's when we become institutionalised. That's when the church becomes uh, a place where it has form but absolutely no power. That's what happens. And it makes it complicated. So, what is our job description? Our job description is that we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So my, my challenge to all of us, including myself today, is let's get our natural Sophia out of the way. Yeah? That can't demonstrate anything. Self-actualization leads to nothing. It's a big fat zero. Um, you know, let's encounter him. He's going to explain things to us. Let, let others encounter him. Let's help other people encounter him. You know, just recently we had our gorgeous little granddaughter Lucy staying with us. And she was helping us do some work around the house, and she's so cute. She's a bit of a businesswoman, so she negotiated her salary. And she did it twice, so she doubled the pay and then added a dollar on top of that. So she basically had $6 coming her way. Well, actually, it was $5, but we didn't have a $5 note. We only had $6 in coins, and so she said very quickly, that will do, thank you very much. So she had her $6 in coins, and she had them in a cute little hand, and we were, we were actually walking down the road because we also had some other money. We were, I was taking her for a walk. We were going to go and buy some eggs from our neighbours chickens that drive us all nuts but anyway and uh, walk all around our street but we we're going to go down there and buy some 
some fresh eggs. And as we're walking down, you know, we walked down the street, then we came up and then she saw Papa walking out, getting wood from, from the neighbor's place across the road. So she went over and helped him. And then she went back into the yard and went to the wood, our wood pile and walked all over the place. And then about an hour later, she said, oh, Mimi, I've lost $2 of my coins. And I said, well, honey, let's pray. Let's pray and let's ask Jesus where she goes, no, I don't want to pray. So why don't you want to pray? She goes, he never answers my prayers. Well, that is like red rag to a bull with me, right? <laughs> I'm like, but darling, he loves you. No, he doesn't love me. He doesn't answer my prayers. I said, okay, Lucy, this is what it's going to look like. We're going to pray. I said, do you want to pray? No, I'm not going to pray. And of course, I'm thinking, there is $2, another $2 in the car. I could just go and get it out right now and throw it on the ground and say, there it is. And I thought, nah. I said, so I started praying. And I said, Jesus, you are going to show my little granddaughter, how much you love her and how much you ask, answer her prayers. And so I walked around. I basically had this kind of a face-to-face -face with Jesus. And I'm walking around. I walked through to the wood pile. I'm looking through. I felt like that woman in the, in the New Testament, like the, the widow's mite, you know, scouring for the lost coin. I'm looking all over the, the property. I went across the road. I went down the street twice. I went inside the house. I looked in her bags. I looked everywhere. And the whole time I'm saying, Jesus, you have to come through because she is believing and trusting. And I want her to have an encounter with this. I want her to see that and to know that you do love her and that you do answer her prayers. And I thought, I'm not going to cheat and go and plant something somewhere. I'm going to resist that temptation. And I just said, God, you're going to do it. So about two hours later, as I'm still looking, now remember, I'd already looked in the bags, looked everywhere, and I walked back in the house and I heard a voice say to me, it was actually a voice and I saw it happening. I saw her with her backpack opening up her bag and putting, she must have had a purse in there, and I saw her opening a purse, putting the money in her purse, and it dropped to the bottom of the bag. So I went straight into her bedroom, I opened up the backpack, I looked in the bottom of the bag, and guess what I found? The $2. So I nearly went to get it out, then I went, no, 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 no. So that night, by the time she'd come in from playing and doing all sorts of things, I'd, I, was up, I was out, I think I was down in queue, and uh, I rang her just before she went to bed, Brian was putting her to bed, and I said, Lucy, I said, honey, have you found your money? She goes, no. I said, Luce, I think God spoke to me earlier today. I think God told me that your money, your $2 is in the bottom of your backpack that you dropped it when you were putting it in your purse. And she went, oh, I heard a voice tell me that it was at the bottom of my backpack that I dropped it when I put it in my purse. These were her words to me. I said, did you look? And she said, no. I said, quick, 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 go and have a look. She jumped off the top bunk, jumped down, looked in the bag, and because she was using Brahm's phone, all I could hear through my phone was, holy cow! <laughs> She's very spiritual. <laughs> she found her money and straight away she texted her mum, holy cow, mum, I prayed, I lost my money and I prayed and I asked God for my money back and I found it. And she said, because I read her text, and, I, and, and she said, and I heard a voice tell me, it's in the bottom of your bag. Now, that sounds so simplistic and so whatever. But you know what? I'm desperate for people to have an encounter with him. This isn't about head knowledge. This isn't about so natural Sophia. This is about an, an encounter with him. 
This is about knowing him. This is about setting her on a path of a proper journey with the love of Jesus, that yes, Jesus does love you and he does care even about your blooming little $2 that you wrangled out of us because you're such a good businesswoman. You know, like, it sounds so simple, but I I was in warfare that afternoon, walking around, Jesus, you're gonna have to do this because she has to know. I said, come on, Lord, show me. I just love the Lord so much. See, Christ in me. Christ in me. He wants to speak to us. These aren't just big lofty words. This is truth. You have the anointed one in you. He is our hope of glory. You know, he caused me to understand truth from the beginning of my journey with him, from the very first baby steps of obedience, right through to the correct adult responses, even now as a leader. I've had dreams from him, but I need to listen to those dreams. I've had to obey those dreams. You know, and I won't go into it all now, I'll teach that in another week. But the anointing brings alive in our hearts what we learn from the Word of God. He's taught me how to live. You know, you've heard the story in DMS, how it was on the pill when I first, when I first became a Christian. And he taught me from within. He spoke to me. Now, did I know about the anointing? No. Did I even know about the Holy Spirit? No. But that doesn't stop him from operating in me. It's not our head knowledge that matters. It's that relationship. He taught me how to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He taught me how to behave. He, he gave me dreams, warning me in, in, in specific situations, don't act like that. He taught me how to believe. When I, when I thought Brahm had a brain tumor and were, the hospital was saying there was something wrong with him and he taught me, and I, I won't go into it now, but he taught me how to believe the word of God and to be anxious for nothing. He's taught me how to minister. He's taught me, I've had dreams about how to prophesy. This was in the early 80s. You know, he's taught me things that when I read books now, the people have written whole books on how to prophesy or how to do this or how to do that. I think, yeah, I've been teaching that for years and I never read a book because we've got the same spirit on the inside teaching us. See, look at all the gold sitting in this room right now. Don't just look to us up the front where our job is to be the other way around. We're meant to be looking to you. We're equipping you to do the work of ministry. You've got Christ in you, the hope of glory. Your neighbours, your, your, your community, your, your friends, your family, they need who you have on the inside. Every one of us has a Lucy in our lives. Every one of us has somebody who needs just a simple touch from God and we have to link our faith with theirs and sometimes we have to lead them with our faith even when they're in unbelief. Sometimes we just have to say, no, Jesus does love you and he's gonna show you and we have to put our faith out on the line like I did. He's taught me how to minister. He's taught me how to respond to the dealings of God. Come on, guys. This is who we have on the inside of us. It's so simple. This is the mystery. This is the hidden knowledge. It's this mystery that was hidden for ages and generations. Christ in us, the hope of glory. If rulers of this age had known, they would never have killed the Lord of glory. They would never have killed Jesus. Whew. This is what happens when we have that encounter. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and we're going to, we're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're going to pray for a fresh encounter and just letting go of the, the wisdom of self, yeah? And actually asking God, what are the things that we've done, where we've done that, where we've replaced our own wisdom, where we've replaced his wisdom with our own wisdom, I should say. Let's just let's, let's stand right now and let's, let's just worship together and then we're going to pray.
Let's, as, as you're worshiping, just ask the Lord. Say, all right, God, I want to encounter you. Like, this is between you and Him. Just say, I want to encounter you. You know, bring your feelings and your questions and your fears to Him. And, and say, God, I don't want to be self-reliant anymore. I want to die to that wisdom of self. Let's just, let's just worship God right now.